Please take your Bible and turn to Job chapter 1. Let me, uh, just for sake of context, let me read the section that we're in. Um, Some of you are wondering if we're ever going to get back to the text. Uh, We are. We're going to do that today. And um, let's jump in here. Job chapter 1, we'll start at verse 13. This is following the first uh, visit that Satan has with God. Verse 13, Now it happened on the day when his sons and his daughters were eating and drinking wine in their oldest brother's house, that a messenger came to Job and said, The oxen were plowing and the donkeys feeding beside them, and the Sabaeans attacked and took them. They also slew the servants with the edge of the sword, and I alone have escaped to tell you. While he was still speaking, another also came, and the fire of God fell from heaven and burned up the sheep and the servants and consumed them, and I alone have escaped to tell you. And while he was still speaking. Another also came and said, The Chaldeans formed three bands and made a raid on the camels and took them and slew the servants with the edge of the sword, and I alone have escaped to tell you. And while he was still speaking, another also came and said, Your sons and your daughters were eating and drinking wine in their oldest brother's house, and behold, a great wind came from across the wilderness, and it struck the four corners of the house, and it fell on the young people, and they all died. And I alone have escaped to tell you. Then Job arose and tore his robe and shaved his head and fell to the ground, and he worshipped. And he said, Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked I shall return there. The Lord gave... And the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. And through all of this, Job did not sin, nor did he blame God. Um, it's time now to talk about what the book of Job is about. Um, I think we have some idea as we've taken little rabbit trails, as we've developed different parts of uh, the things that we've seen. But I want to introduce to you the three main themes of Job. And if you can think about them like this, think of them as as sort of three circles that overlap, if you will. Okay? The, um, The first theme that Job is really about is this issue of worship. And that's what we're going to focus on this morning. A second theme is what we might call prosperity and suffering. And the third theme is the issue of injustice. Okay? Now let me tell you how this is going to play out. The three themes in Job correspond to the three main characters in the book, or in one case, the the friends constitute one character. The issue of worship is revolves around the person of Satan, who has a complete misunderstanding of what true worship is and why true worship should happen. The issue of prosperity and suffering 
is an issue with Job's three friends. Uh, three friends. They don't understand the relationship between prosperity and suffering and what God is doing in the life of people. So the book of Job is going to address the topic of worship because Satan needs correction, the topic of prosperity and suffering because the friends need correction, and the third issue is the issue of injustice, and that is our friend Job who ultimately misunderstands the issue of divine justice and injustice. Now, the reason these things overlap, even though to some degree the themes are tied to those particular characters, is because is stuck right in the middle here is Mr. Job. And Mr. Job is living out all three of these themes as God is presenting them through the book of Job. Does that make sense? Even though at the end of the day, this is the topic that the Lord is going to focus on with him, he is living through God's plan to explain worship to Satan. He is living through and is the main character in God's plan to explain to the friends the true relationship of prosperity and suffering to a person's life and God's design. And he is living through his own uh, a lesson, if you will, that God's going to teach him about divine justice and injustice. Okay, so when you think of Job, this is one of those books that's so hard to get your, your brain around, and I can't promise you that as we get halfway through this book, I don't change my mind here. But as best as I can tell, this is what the book of Job is about. It's about worship, it's about prosperity and suffering, and it's about injustice. And like I said, Job is right in the middle quite literally living uh, in the midst of God working in all three of those different themes. Okay, does that make sense? Okay? And uh, we'll come back to this in a little bit, but I just wanted to give you kind of a picture to hang your hat on for now as we jump into this. So, so the first topic that we're going to talk about today is worship. Okay? And um, <laughs> what is worship? What is worship? Um, I would suggest to you that it's one of those things that we all talk about, we're all familiar with, but when you actually try to pin it down in terms of a definition, uh, it's kind of like jello, you know, it just keeps kind of oozing out all over the place. Um, it, it's difficult to get our, our uh, minds around what the issue of worship is. In fact, I, we are so confused about what worship is in our Christian culture today that we have... Um, we say stuff like this. Someone will get up and, um, uh, and they will say, we're going to do worship now. Let's get out the guitar and the drums and the keyboard. And, right? and what are they saying? They, they've replaced music, right? What, what should be music, they, they've substituted that with the word worship. And worship becomes just another word for music. Now, music can certainly be worship. But it's like we've, we've boiled it down to just that part of the service where we do the music. In fact, we even talk about that. We have a worship leader when it's really the song leader, the music leader. Um, so, so let me, well, let's, let's just try this again. I'm, I'm in a kind of a picture mode today. I hope you're okay with that. Um, can we think about worship in terms of some elements just going to grab this so I don't have to keep going back here. It's in my head, but I don't want to forget. 
Worship, first of all, deals with allegiance. Allegiance. Who is our master? Who, who is the most important person? Or what is the most important thing in my life? Who am I loyal to? It, it's my allegiance. That's the first commandment, right? You shall have no other gods before me. It's the commandment of exclusive allegiance. Secondly, worship is about submission. Who, who am I submitting to? Who am I following? Who, who am I lowering myself under? Or what am I lowering myself under? Thirdly, as we mentioned, it is about praise and song. Okay, It is about that. Our, our worship gets expressed in, in one of the two main ways that Scripture reveals through praise and through song. Another element is this issue of joy or happiness. Two Ps or one? Two. Thank you. And, and satisfaction. That's what we were reading just a moment ago. The, the one who makes God his refuge is satisfied, is joyful, is happy. So, so worship has something to do with my joy and my happiness and my satisfaction. It has something to do with motivation. It, it has something to say about why I do what I do. What motivates me to do what I do? What's driving me to do what I do? By the way, I'm getting all this. If you survey the Scripture about worship, these are the elements you get, okay? Uh, so this is sort of the jet tour overview. It also has to do with actions in life, or, or we could just say my life in general, okay? Scripture presents worship as a, as a life-dominating issue. So what I do in terms of actions, what my life looks like is representative of my worship, it also has something to do with love and affection, my affections, my desires. Okay? Worship has something to do with why I want what I want and what I want and what I love and what I want to do. And, and then finally, it has this element of who I serve or what I serve. Okay? Now, there's a very, very, very often overlooked element that goes in the middle. There's really only one thing that connects all of these aspects of worship that Scripture speaks of. Okay? And, and it's, it's so obvious that we forget it sometime. Okay? And it's right here. And, before I tell you, this is absolutely the heart of this first message that Job is trying to communicate to us, okay? It's the issue of what I value or what worth I put on something. Um, we could say it like this. Worship is about when I value something so highly that it captures my affections, it determines my allegiance, it wins our love, it motivates our actions, it drives our praise, it submits our will, and it brings our joy. Okay? Uh, let me give you those elements so that you have them here, okay? I didn't know how you wanted to put this in your notes, so rather than give you blanks, I just gave you a big space. You can put the picture or you can put the, uh, 
the, the elements there, okay? I'll, I'll say that again, okay? Worship is about when I value something, when I declare something worth, value, weight, and it captures my affections, it determines my allegiance, it wins my love, it motivates my actions, it drives my praise, it brings my will under submission to it, and it brings my joy. How important is this? And, and, and really, here's what I want you to see this center element is really the issue. Okay, hold your place there. Turn to Revelation uh, chapter 4, please. Gary knows where I'm going. Just, just I want to give you a glimpse of heaven that probably illustrates the heart of worship more than any other verse in Scripture. Okay? We're going to take a glimpse into heaven and see the heart of worship, the center element of true worship. Okay? I think this does it better than any other verse in Scripture. That's why we're going there. Um, setting up the context, uh, this is uh, the scene in heaven before the, um, the, the seals are broken. You remember that? And um, the four living creatures are there in chapter 4, verse 8. Uh, not ceasing day and night to say, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. And then they bow down and they worship. And then the 24 elders uh, who are probably representative of the church, they fall down to him who sits on the throne, verse 10. Are you there? 410. Uh, and they uh, will worship him who lives forever. They will cast their crowns before him saying, What? Worthy are you, our Lord, to receive glory and honor and power. What is the center element of worship? It's the declaration that God is worthy, that He is infinitely valuable, that He is infinitely worth more than anything else. And that value that we put on Him that, that estimation that we make of his worth and of his value is the center of worship. It's what's behind all of this. And just as a footnote, it's why when we come here for corporate worship and we are not esteeming God as valuable and as worthy and as wonderful, if that's not going on in here, guess what happens to all this other stuff? It doesn't happen. And the, the, the flip side of this, and it's where the book of Job is going, is that it is very easy to make the heart of our worship, or, or we might say a better way, the ultimate object of our worship, not God, but other things. Do, do you see that? But Revelation says it so, so uh, pointedly here. He is worthy our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor. He is ultimately the only one worth enough, valuable enough to take our ultimate worship and praise and devotion. Now, a couple other things about worship. Worship is our primary function. 
Worship is, is what we do. We were made to worship God. Everything else is connected to that. And I wish I had time to develop that right now. I don't. Everything else God wants us to do is connected back to our primary function of worshiping God. And by the way, God did not build us with a worship off switch. You can't turn it off. From the minute uh, we are born, we, the, the, the wheels of worship are running until the day we die. And there's no off switch, which means, which means if we're not worshiping God, what happens? We find something else. There's no standby mode. There's no sleep or hibernate, no off. It's all worship. Now, let me give you another picture. Turn in your Bibles to Romans chapter 1. Romans chapter 1, a foundational chapter on worship. We cannot understand worship without Romans 1. I, I, mean, I am getting to Job. Just hang in there, okay? Get in there. Okay, what did I just tell you? I, I told you that God made us to worship. So, so here we are right here. God made us to worship. He is our Lord. Okay, He is our Master. He designed us. Under him as our Lord, our God, our Master, when Adam and Eve were created, they were designed to worship God, to enjoy him. And the way this worked was, in the garden, he was of infinite value, wasn't he? And they saw that, and they embraced that, and they worshipped him because he was intrinsically valuable and and worth, uh, ultimately, more than anything else. And that expresses itself then, in worship. As Adam and Eve saw God's value, esteemed His worth, that motivated and drove their worship. Now, let me just explain to you very practically how that works. They're in paradise. And they might see something that, like a sunset, right? They might see a wonderful, beautiful sunset. And because God is supremely valuable, because He is the object of their worship... They see that sunset. They say, that is so beautiful. That is so enjoyable. And they're praising it. But, but who ultimately gets the glory for it? Where does that praise ultimately terminate on? God, right? Not the sunset. Not nature. God does. They might be enjoying a fellowship with one another. They enjoy that fellowship in their marriage. And they enjoy that. But that doesn't lead them to praise ultimately just each other. It leads them, their praise terminates on the God who made it. So see, here's the thing. The enjoyment gained, the praise done of all these wonderful things in creation, when God is the center, that praise ultimately terminates on God even as these other things are enjoyed. Does that make sense? Okay. Look at Romans 1. When sin came into the world, something very, very, very bad happened. Look at verse 21. Even though they knew God, they did not honor Him as God. Romans chapter 1, verse 21. Or give thanks, but they became futile in their speculations, and their foolish heart was darkened. That's, that's a description of what happens um, in the lives of all sinners in, in terms of worship. Verse 22. Professing to be wise, they became fools. And, I've told you this before, key word, they exchanged. Do you see that? 
They exchanged the glory of the incorruptible God for an image in the form of corruptible man and of birds and of four-footed creatures, or animals and crawling creatures. Therefore God gave them over in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, that their bodies might be dishonored among them. For they, here it is again, they exchanged the truth of God. The truth of what? The truth that He is of ultimate value, that He is the center, that He alone is ultimately worthy of our praise. They exchanged that truth for a lie, the lie that something else can be more value, something else is more worthy. That's the lie. And then they worship and serve the creature rather than the Creator. Let me, let me show you how this works, okay? Sin comes into the world and it erects a new crown. It removes the crown from God and now who wears the crown? I do. It gets turned on its head. I rip the crown off of God and I put it on myself. Now I will be the one to determine what I worship. When I rip the, the, throne, the crown off of God and I put it on myself, now I'm going to determine what fills in this blank called value. Okay? And once I fill that blank in, that becomes the object of my worship. That becomes what I worship. So let's go back to our examples. We see a beautiful sunset and we praise nature. Oh, isn't nature wonderful? Isn't that so wonderful? And we're praising nothing. Or a child comes into the world. That's a gift from God and we're so thankful for that. And our praise should terminate on God and we say, Wow, um, what good parents. Right? What wonderful parents that we have. What wonderful heritage we have. And what gets put in here ends up being what we worship and then ends up determining where our praise terminates. Okay? Now, let me ask you a very, very important question. What did Satan put in this blank in Job? His ego, okay, good. I definitely had that. Well, let me say it. Let me set it up a little bit better. Satan came to God, challenging him on something. Okay, keep going. Job said, or, or Satan said to God, "There's." <laughs> There's a reason Job worships you the way he does. Okay? And, and in saying so, he's saying, God, Job is not really worshiping you, God, for your sake. Satan is saying to God, Job's worship ultimately terminates on something else. There's a reason other than God. And, and it's a blank that Satan just throws out. What is it? You, you, you came close. It's what he can get out of it, right? It's, it's the blessings of God. And that, isn't that so subtle? Cause it's of God, right? It's, 
Yes, God has given me these things, and he's acknowledging that God gives him those things. He's not, you know, thanking fate or chance or upbringing or anything like that. And that's why it's so subtle. Satan's argument is that Job is really valuing the gift over the giver. Okay? We all on the same page with that? We've talked about this a little bit before. And so he appears to worship God, but really only because of his blessings. You you know what this is? We can call this a doxological detour. Because the praise ultimately terminates on something other than God. So, go back to Job. Now that we've sort of understood some mechanics about worship... And you understand, this is the paradigm. This, this is the Romans 1 explanation for why people do what they do, why we struggle with what we struggle with. We have ripped the crown off of God. We have put it on ourselves. And now we are running around trying to determine what goes in this blank. And it's not like one person just has one thing that goes here because you put something in here and what happens? It does not satisfy you. So you put something else in there. And it doesn't satisfy. You put something else in there, and it doesn't satisfy. We spend the rest of our life, because there's no off button on worship, right? Trying to fill that blank in. What is ultimately valuable that I can worship, that I can wrap my life around? Which is why repentance, coming to Christ, is doing what? It's taking off this crown. It's dethroning yourself putting it back on God where it belongs and saying, you alone are worthy of my worship, my praise, and my life. Okay, so come back to Job. The the stage is set, right? Uh, uh, Satan has laid this case out. God says, I'm going to give you permission to go and and test Job in that way. And we just read about how that happens. Satan is set... Satan's goal is to expose God as empty and void of any ultimate worth or value by showing that Job only worships him because of the blessings. Do you see that? What what Satan has his crosshairs on is showing that this is not true. That God is not ultimately worthy, that he is not ultimately valuable, and he's going to prove that by showing that Job's worship is only based on the blessings and gifts that he's getting from God. God has to buy worship from people. That's the bottom line. Now, God is not honored by worship that is based on anything else other than the declaration that he alone is worthy and valuable. God is not honored by any other worship other than the declaration that he alone is worthy and valuable. Okay? That, that's why, this, this is a very, very, very crucial text in Scripture. Why do we worship? Can we just ask that question? Why do we worship? Well, let's see what happens when everything is taken away from Job. His kids, his stuff, his animals, his servants. There's a few servants who show up to report who each apparently only survived the the four different incidents. 
Let's look at Job's response. The first thing we see in chapter 1, verse 20, is that he arose and he tore his robe and he shaved his head. What's that all about? That's how you expressed sorrow and grief in the ancient day. That is an expression, first of all, of his sorrow, his grief, and his pain. Uh, Job was not some robotic believer, some stoic that had no feelings and no emotion and no, no sense of what's going on. In fact, what we're going to see is his emotions and our pain and hurt in something like this have a very important theological message to communicate. We'll come back to that in a minute. But that's an expression of his grief, his sorrow, and his pain. But notice, secondly, what else did he do? He fell to the ground and he worshipped. Now, what does that word mean? This, this comes back to the little thing we had up here, okay? The little word there that's translated in the NASB as worship is literally to submit. And that, that's why, again, I'm trying to take all this time to, to bring us back. What is worship? Worship is saying you are so valuable, so worthy, that I'm going to joyfully submit to what you're doing in my life. Do you see that? When it says, there's, I said this before, I'm going to say this again, and I hope I don't step on toes. I actually like the song, but, but I'm, going to, I'm going to criticize it. There's a song based on this verse. Um, Blessed be the name of the Lord. Okay, And it's sort of a peppy sort of, it's kind of a peppy sort of praise song. That is not at all the dimension of worship that's being talked about here. Praise and worship. That's not the dimension that's being emphasized here. And the reason people write songs like that is they don't have any other category for worship other than praise and, and guitars. When he says worship, when he says blessed be the name of the Lord, what he's saying is, Lord, you are my all in all, you are my master, you are my God, and I submit to what you're doing in my life right now. He's not having a praise concert. He's declaring his ultimate contentment and allegiance to his God. Do you see that? Do you see what I'm saying? This is very important to see. It's the word submission. Actually, it's a, it's a, I can't get into Hebrew grammar too much here, but, but the, the type of verb that it is, is reciprocal. It's something you do that has bearing back on yourself. He's submitting himself to what God is doing in his life. And I would suggest to you that one of the main ways Scripture presents worship is not whether we're singing or not, although the Bible certainly makes that important. Okay, so I want to discount that. The main way the Bible presents worship is do we submit in trust and obedience to whatever God's providence brings? That shows the heart of worship. Um, I've said it before, we'll say it again. Uh, Jeremiah Burroughs in his book on contentment, The Puritan, Christian contentment is that sweet, inward, gracious, 
frame of spirit which freely submits to and delights in God's wise fatherly disposal in every condition. You came in at the right time, didn't you? It's, it's, that, it's that freely submits to and delights in that centers worship. So he worships. He, he submits himself there. And, and that shows us, that's part of this divine design. You ready? Suffering reveals the heart behind our worship. Suffering, think of it like this, suffering blows the smoke away in our life. It blows away the smoke so we can see why do I really worship? Who do I really worship? Am I really just kidding myself and I'm worshiping a God of my own making for what I can get? And that's why, that, that's why this book is so important. We need suffering to blow that smoke away to see why do I really worship? Who do I really worship? What's my motivation behind that? And without suffering, I would dare say, without suffering, most of us don't see that clearly. One of the things we have to ask ourselves that this book and and others challenge us on is, do I really want to know my heart? And do I really want to be more like Jesus, enough to say, Lord, do what you need to do to show me what's really going on here. Suffering reveals the heart behind our worship. God is not honored by worship motivated by just the blessings that He brings. Which is why the true test is, do I worship Him when my world falls apart? Because the reality is, whether I worship Him when life is good is pretty much irrelevant. It's pretty irrelevant. It's good, I mean, not that we shouldn't do that, but it's irrelevant for really showing me where I'm at. There's a fourth thing I want you to see. Notice His theocentric explanation. His theocentric explanation. Remember we talked about this a few weeks ago? Nobody in this book says it was Satan's fault. Because nobody can see that. Only the reader gets to see behind the curtain of heaven, so to speak. No one in this book says it was the Chaldeans that did it. Everybody says, no, 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 this is God. And even Job himself, what is he saying? He says, naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked I will return. In in the text, in the original text, the word naked is emphatic. He's, He's emphasizing he has nothing when he comes into the world, and we have nothing when we leave. And if you think about that, (laughs) that brings a lot of clarity to worship. Doesn't it? Did you come into the world with anything? Will we leave this world with anything? This is the part where you answer. No, okay. I'm just up here doing my thing. You guys are being quiet. Just let Keith go, right? Okay. Um, 
What is that saying? What's the only thing you can fill in this blank that's going to last? What's the only thing that is worthy, that is valuable? That's why it's in Revelation. Because in heaven, you ready? It's clear. Because there's nothing else. Sir. <laughs> Sorry. I told Doc this morning, he said hello, and I said, I'm about ready to explode. Look out. Naked I came. He came into the world with no benefits. Naked I will return. He will return with no benefits. And that brings clarity to the issue. And then, and then he says, look what it says. Yahweh gave. And Yahweh, the covenant God, the personal name of God, has taken away. And it's again, it's emphatic in the text. He takes his finger and he points and says, God did this. My Father is doing this. The Lord gave. The Lord takes away. Now, hang on with me, okay? By saying, I came into the world with nothing, and I will lead... Leave with nothing. God does all of this. I would suggest to you that in saying that, Job is viewing his loss through the lens of grace. Do you get that? You say, how's that? What he's saying is, I came in with nothing, I will leave with nothing, so if there's anything good that I have, it's all of grace. Do you see that? One of the things that just jumped off the page at me is, the reason Job can say in 21 what he says, and we go, I don't know if I could ever do that. Is because he's viewing it through the lens of grace. He's viewing it through what he really deserves and what God has very graciously given, even for a time. Can we understand? If we come into the world with nothing and we leave with nothing, there's nothing that we have is not a, that's not a gift of grace. Do you see that? We don't deserve anything. We don't have a right to anything. But God lavishly pours out all these gifts of grace. And we can get so used to them that we forget that that's exactly what they are, gifts of grace. God brings them in, and we are to say, praise God, what a gift of grace. If God chooses to take it away, we say, praise God for that undeserved grace that He allowed me to have for a time. Because even for a time, I didn't deserve it. Through the lens of grace, there are no, no ultimate gains or losses because we all have more than we deserve. There are no ultimate gains and losses when viewing through grace because we all have more than we deserve. Do you have family? Do you enjoy family? You know what that is? Grace. 
Job had animals. Lots of animals. You know what that was? Grace. Job had servants that were taken away. You know what those were? Gifts of grace. Instead of seeing them as rights and demands, he saw them as gifts of grace. And that, that is what allows him to respond the way he does. So he says, blessed be the name of Yahweh. The name, the, the name there is emphatic. God's name, God's reputation. God is, Job is saying to God, your reputation is to be blessed, is to be valued and ascribed worth to. That's what he's saying when he brings in the name of God. He's saying, bless your character, bless your name, bless your reputation. You alone are worthy. And that trusting, submissive heart that we see here in Job is the rail that the vehicle of worship runs upon. Okay, now, what does the level of pain of an experience reveal? What do you think about this? Okay, I, I just painted a lens of grace. Okay, that's how he's seeing this. What does the level of pain reveal when viewing a situation through the lens of grace? You know what it reveals? To a certain extent, the more pain I feel in suffering, that, that's an indicator that I've received that much grace. Do you see that? In, in mourning a loss of this nature, Job is declaring how much grace he enjoyed. And, and I just want to encourage you to think about that. When we experience heartache and loss and suffering and real hurt because something is taken away from us, that pain is a way of reminding us how much grace we enjoy. Do you see that? I think the pain we experience, the depth of the pain we experience in loss is often proportional to the extent of grace that we have been shown. Now, even in great loss, even in great suffering, what is Job saying to us? What is he saying about God? He's worthy. And again, that's why this is so much the issue. If someone is here, you can't take this away. And so worship is always possible. But if we slide down here where we're filling in, as Satan wrongly supposed, that it was the blessings of God that Job was really worshiping, then that sets worship on its head. Yes? Yeah, and I, th- I thought about that because I thought, you know, if we're down here, then certainly, yeah. W- what I'm trying to show is that when we're here, we're not Christian Stoics. Does that make sense? And you're absolutely right, and I'm glad you said that because we can be down here 
And, and pain is because, you know, I just lost my God, my functional God, little g. But if we're here, this doesn't look like Christian stoicism where, where nothing ever changes my emotional state. That, that's not it at all. But I appreciate you, you saying that because it's all of undeserved grace. God is worthy to be praised and worthy to be blessed uh, because, because we always have Him. And then verse 22, Job did not sin. He did not blame God in all of this. That's absolutely astounding, isn't it? Well, the word in verse 22 that gets translated blaming God is saying there's something that God did wrong in this. There's some flaw in his character. And, and that becomes important for what happens later on. Okay. But your question is, is he equating... Well, one is more specific. You know, sin is, is the drip pan. That's the big one. And blaming God is saying there's something particular in God's character that Job is saying is wrong. Yeah. Yes, bring a charge against him in terms of his character. Okay. Wow. Um, so let's ask a question. Why do we worship God? That, that's, that's the in-your-kitchen challenge of this text. Why do you worship? Why do I worship? Um, the, the times when God brings trial or suffering are opportunities to see who and why we really worship. God is not honored by worship driven by any other thing than that He alone is valuable and worthy of our worship. Um, wow. Well, let's, um, let's stop right there. Uh, questions on what we've talked about. We could get into round two, but we'll save that for next week. Yeah, Gary. was a good thing. But uh, just, just, uh, I mean, just the other day I heard somebody that, that um, they had a financial setback and they are not receiving it. I'm not receiving this. I'm going to... to uh, not receiving it from God, they mean. Yeah. I'm not going to receive it. Yeah. And they are going to uh, say it's, uh, claim, or claim success and cast out Satan right. from this, this setback. Wow. 
you know, I... Yeah. Yeah, I, I will say this. Um, I've seen this uh, so many times. Um, when we're dealing with something difficult, something that we haven't seen before, uh, we are more prone to put our trust in things that ordin- ordinarily we would, we would not. So there's a danger in that, and I think that's what you see, whether it's someone, uh, I told you before about the, the lady that had the kids that weren't behaving and they were trying to do what Bible said and it wasn't working, you know, the first time. And then it all it became about, you know, these demons. Well, there's these demons and we've got to pray around their room every night and cast out the, and it's like, what? But the other thing that we see in those difficult times is that we have clarity with our own hearts that we normally don't have. And that's where we need to see, why do I worship? You know, am I worshiping God because He makes my life so nice? Or am I worshiping God because He alone is worthy? And like I said, that, that's a, that's a, that takes a lot of courage to ask that question. That's not an easy question to ask. Do, do I want to know that? Do I want to know really why I do what I do? But it's the challenge of Job. It's such an important issue because who we worship and why we worship is of the absolute utmost importance in the believer's life. God is not honored by any other kind of worship. Let's pray.